Alrighty. So to wrap up this episode here, what I figured we'd do here, Joe, um, is to talk about some of the course themes that I have in one of my graduate courses. As I said, I'm in American Studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the courses that I'm taking this semester is a seminar in public heritage. Great. Um, you know, we focus on such topics as, you know, museum etiquette, you know, what to and what not to keep in museums. Don't bring your kid. Yeah. <laughs> always, always, always. Uh, that's a message to the audience. So please not take your children to the museum. <laughs> um, but yeah, just like museum practices and whatnot. But then also, as per the course's title, we also talk about, you know, the evolution of, of public heritage and not just the United States, but on the international scene. Mm-hmm. But then also, you know, how this has evolved over time. You know, in the 20th century, it really came into prominence through various forms. And that's that's kind of what I would like to talk about with you here. One of the questions, at least, um, to wrap up this this episode here. So, so one of the readings that we focused on in this class is by an individual of the name of Thomas Calvin, I believe, as you say his name. And he writes upon this evolution of uh, public history across the 20th century. Mm. So um, in the 1960s, it, it said that international development occurred on people's history, you know, which was a form of history which kind of focused on telling the stories of ordinary and under, underrepresented individuals rather than just solely, you know, the elite figures of right. of international history. You know, your George Washingtons, your Winston Churchills, your et cetera, et cetera. Um, so then later in the 1970s, there was, there was this emergence of a U.S. specific form of public history. And this was viewed as a major departure from traditional quote unquote ivory tower, you know, hoity toity academic history. And this sought to give history students the tools for educating others on history outside of the classroom. And then in the final decades of the 20th century and into the 21st century, we see all of these elements culminating into a new public history approach that sought to really place the audience at the focus of historical education. Hmm. Um, and overall, I'd just like to discuss the value that both of us may see in this evolution of public history and then where exactly we think it, it sits today. Yeah, it's a, it's a great discussion point. I think getting to a point where you had said like the hoity-toity history is like, I think people outside of the field or with a general understanding of what history as a field is, tend to think of you know, the tweed jacket wearing white haired old British man, you know, smoking a pipe, like, oh, that's a historian. Like I can't be that. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is very much, I think, a holdover from the kind of early progressive era. So like, you know, the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds sort of history where, you know, they're all, you know, East Coast New Englanders, you know, going to Harvard or whatever, you know. Um I guess there's nothing wrong with that if you want to apply aesthetic to it, but what, you know, that's besides the point. I think that sort of advance into the realm of using history as a tool to tell the story of underrepresented groups, whether that be, uh, you know, a racial minority or of a different gender or just of the everyday person. I think that is an incredibly beneficial route for public history, especially to go, because with public history, you kind of tell stories that. I think people can really relate to when it comes to understanding the past. Like, for example, here at least, or even in England, uh, there's a book by John Tosh called Why History Matters, and he kind of talks about this. He talks about uh, heritage and history, that heritage is sort of a form of public history, but it's been misconstrued, but it's still important because 
with public history in England, especially people were able to understand and relate to people in the past because there were these heritage sites, so to speak, that were being preserved and telling the story of like an everyday British farmer in like the, you know, the medieval period or the 1800s. And I think that is incredibly beneficial, not only to the field of history, but for everyone else, basically, in, in societies, <laughs> like you build up the stories of the individual because that matters just as much. It would not you know, these great things wouldn't happen if there weren't people back at home, right? You know, mm. <laughs> if there wasn't a home front, so to speak, none of these great men would have really <laughs> been great men. It would have just been, you know, uh, things are happening over there, and, you know, it's going, <laughs> something's happening, uh, I don't really know. But, you know, one way to look at it this way is uh, if we wanted to go the great man approach, like uh, top-down sort of public history is like, Imagine George Washington without a farm or without a plantation or without his slaves. Mm. Like, it's not really George Washington then, you know. And I, I, that's, those are things that are important to attach, to attach to this person's legacy, to humanize them, to sort of bring them down to a level where people in the public can understand on a much more intimate level than, you know, reading George Washington's name in black and white in a book is like, oh, this is the greatest guy who, like, ever lived. This guy is basically, like, an American god. Whereas you go to, you know, a public a place where public history really matters, like Mount Vernon and George Washington's home, he's just, like, a guy. He, he's a guy that owns slaves. He made mistakes. You know, he's just a person at the end of the day. He has a bed. George Washington sleeps. He's got a toilet. He goes to the bathroom, you know? <laughs> I think that is a massive benefit of public history geared towards the sort of uh, lay person, if you will, is that it makes the past much more accessible to a general audience who might not understand all the nuances of history itself. So yeah, I think it's it's overall very beneficial. Absolutely, and I really like how you said about the you know the top down approach to history because mm-hmm. you look at the time period in which this um, in which this focus on you know lower level characters in history and. You know, just the common man, the history of the common man. Um, you look at the time in which this emerged in the 60s, and that goes along with a lot of the social revolution that mm, you've seen at the right. time in terms of, you know, no longer is this going to be, you know, a, a history told from the top down. We want to build a bottom-up history, a grassroots history. Right. Which were indeed alternate titles given to um, this version of public history, this mm. early form public history. So it's interesting to see that emerge from this time, and I absolutely agree with you know you get you get a much more fuller you get a much fuller picture of history mm-hmm. when you discuss it from you know the street level you know it, it's it's wonderful to hear about you know your Abraham Lincoln's your George Washington's right. your your Ike Eisenhower's but you got to look at the figures that help build them up to mm-hmm. that level to uh, that level of prominence right. Um, you know, and you get the focus on these these more these these common individuals, and then by proxy you get to also learn more about the the quote unquote elite character that mm-hmm. you know, history always focuses on. Of course, I think to that point, even like I think a lot of people are really into the idea of fantasy, and the only reason I bring that up is because history tends to feel sometimes like a fantasy for people who are not involved in the field, like. Oh, it's this <clears throat> this story of great battles and great men and who ride on white horses and you know into the face mm-hmm. of the enemy or of incredibly you know uh, sly and smart you know political figures that are wheeling and dealing behind the scenes and it's this great conspiracy when 
really, if anything, that's of course it's nowhere near the case. Um, but the way I, the reason I bring that up is because when you tell the story of the everyday person along with the story of the great person, quote unquote, great person there, um, it's kind of like world building. Like you're fleshing out the world that you're learning about. Like learning about the Civil War. It's a field we or an area of study we're both very familiar in. Is it would not be the same if we didn't learn about how people interacted with the the era they were living within because the Civil War is very much a, a conflict that was like the every person's conflict. Like it affected literally everybody in the country, mm-hmm. enslaved or not. Picture the Civil War without the soldiers at that point, if you really don't want to get that into the muck. And, uh, of course, that's a very extreme example. I, I think I'm, you know, jumping the gun here and saying, well, imagine this no, without no, that. No, and, no, you know, no. um, so I don't mean to sound radical <laughs> in any sense of, of the word by that, by that point, but, uh, you know, illuminating these underrepresented stories. I'm doing research right now on the Richmond Bread Riot of 1863, Uh, which has been very understudied. Like, Bruce Catton himself was like, eh, you know, it happened. It's kind of funny. Mm -hmm. He literally kind of called it like a comical event. He's like, eh, you know. Yet these were real individuals suffering terribly. Exactly. The women who had been left behind by their husbands, who had lost their husbands, lost their sons, their brothers, their fathers, had nowhere to go but to Richmond, the Confederate capital, because where else would you get help from the government that's supposed to be protecting you, supposed to be fighting for your quote-unquote rights, you know, Mm -hmm. in the South, and them to say, well, you know, fat rats are just as nutritious as squirrels, (laughs) and then having a crowd of 8,000 women be so upset. 8,000 folks. Oh, my God. Of course, there were men as well, but a lot of them were immigrants who were from other places in the South that had been destroyed by the war. Mm. There were a few immigrants... (laughs) But then you read, like, accounts from the time, and a lot of them say, like, oh, they were mostly Negroes. It's like, no, this was mostly white women, not only of middling class or lower class, but women who were of elite families, people in Richmond who were just so fed up that they couldn't buy food, that the Southern economy was tanking so much that they couldn't feed their children or their families, or they couldn't take care of themselves even without having to steal something. And this Richmond bread riot, of course... They break into general shops. They break into break into general stores. Excuse me, and they raid and and, and pillage and uh, government you know stores and food because they have no other choice. And that in itself, taken into the context of the Civil War, speaks loudly of the situation. Mm-hmm. Because while there's these great men you know riding their horses or going off to battle and die valiantly for their cause, there's women suffering at home. Not only women but slaves and you know people who just cannot traditionally take care of themselves, quote-unquote, in the society they're living in. So imagine the Civil War without that. You're just really, you're making it a, a very gray subject, black and white, by, like, cutting it in half and removing half of it. Without this side of the story, you are not understanding the full nuance of a historical event. And I think telling the other side of the story brings you into a fuller understanding of a, of a subject. And again, mm-hmm. that is just a, one example of many. Yeah. Preach it, Joe. Preach it. Um, so I, I want to get back to like the grassroots level of, you know, this public history real quick, just because I think Lieutenant Cushing, you know, our guy of the hour here, mm. um, he falls within that category. You know, you have a bunch of leading Civil War naval figures like um, David Farragut, for example, you know. Of course, they had the, the leadership down. You know, they were present. He was present at numerous naval engagements during the war. Mm. Chief among them, the uh, 
the Battle of Mobile Bay. But you have individuals like Cushing here that are relatively unknown, even within the circles of the Civil War. And he played an extraordinary role in freeing that eastern region of North Carolina right. um, from the Confederate threat of the Albemarle. And know? to quickly speak to that point, me, who has been studying the Civil War for literally like 10 years, mm-hmm. since I was a little baby boy, <laughs> swaddled in a manger, uh, oh my. <laughs> I didn't know of this story. I, I had no idea, but leave it to a guy named Cushing. Uh, there, I feel like there's so many Cushings in the Civil War that have done something crazy. <laughs> uh, but yeah, to that point. like, And he I, was a maniac. And he was a maniac. <laughs> Let's not forget that. <laughs> and, and I mean... What a guy. Yeah. What a guy. I would not have had the guts to do that. At In your early 20s, like our age, I, I cannot foresee myself taking that kind of leadership role right. and going on a mission. I mean, I've said it to individuals that I've described this, uh, this story to. It's almost like a, a proto-Navy SEAL type of thing <laughs> yeah. that happened all the way back in the Civil War. Yeah. But you just hear about this. You have this individual here. Who not many people know about, you know, he's not the big, one of the big leaders of the Civil War. Right. Um, but he put in the effort to accomplish something that, you know, no other naval officer had the courage to do. Right. And so by studying individuals like him who are often forgotten um, in favor of the more, you know, the more prolific naval leaders and, and generals of the Civil War, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think by studying him, you get a greater idea of what this war was about some of the operations that happened within it. And, you know, I've, I've also said this too about the event. Like this, this event and, and, like, and the circumstances that happened around it, you know, it gives you a greater appreciation of the type of combat that, that happened in the Civil mm-hmm. War. You know, we, a lot of people tend to think that the Civil War was an incredibly static and archaic endeavor between the North and the South. A lot of times early on, when you have that Napoleonic-style combat, that was true. But as the war went along, you know, you saw both sides adopt these, you know, more guerrilla tactics, these mm-hmm. more modernized um, forms of, of forms of combat that were effective, you know, prevented the extraordinary losses that you would have by hundreds of men lining up and getting mm-hmm. just mowed down as they did early on in the war. Well, I think, I don't mean to interrupt, but uh, people call the Civil War, like, the first modern war. Mm-hmm. And I think... Even like looking at the uh, the number of individual conflicts that we know of that happened in the Civil War, battles rather than conflicts, there are over eight thousand engagements during the Civil War, large and small. Mm-hmm. I think you could look at like something like the Peninsula Campaign, where there are, are the battle is like two hundred dudes total, you know, on somewhere on the peninsula, and a victory in that battle secures a Union foothold, like farther on the, on the peninsula. Like small small victories matter here, and like. Mm-hmm. That, I think, is sort of the epitome of, like, a modern war is, like, you have a group of, that's a, a very small group going against another very small group, a, mm-hmm. obtaining some incredible strategic victory during, like, an hour's fighting. Right. And, you know, you have individuals who had previously just been, as you were saying, just kind of like the everyday person, you know, doing extra, extraordinary things that would become something... That if, if it happened today, we'd call him a hero. We'd call him, like, a national hero. And uh, speaking of another Cushing, another Cushing, rather, uh, at Gettysburg on Barlow's Knoll, there was a, a young fellow named Alonzo Cushing. He was kind of, like, the the youngest commander of, of an artillery unit in the Union Army. And he had literally, he got hit in the leg with artillery shell. 
uh, while atop his horse and had to cut his leg off with a pocket knife. And he, because of his actions and his heroics, his staying where he was, he was able to delay the Confederate advance and be a part of this strategy of delaying Confederate uh, the Confederate attack at Gettysburg, holding them off of like of the high ground and thus winning the battle of it. So, you know, you have people like that without these individual people who are forced to act in um, extraordinary and heroic and, if you would, attach that to that action or brave ways that were just, you know, this guy was young. He was probably fresh out of college. If he went to college at all, like he would be our age. A good day for me is replying to an email, like, (laughs) you know, let alone holding back a a, a marauding force of Confederates who want to, you know, kill you. It's, it's like, you know, there's there's so much of that sort of small man sort of bottom-up history that we you can really get into, especially with the Civil War. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a war that covers, again, like I said, it affects everybody in the country. Um, right. And if, I mean, you'd be lucky to say, well, I'm all right. If you live in the Civil War, like, yeah, well, okay, Just living day to day, um, then I guess you were incredibly lucky because you know everybody was involved. And I think if if you want to look at a sort of bottom up approach to history, like the Civil War is a great place to start, as mm-hmm. you were pointing out. Yeah. So I mean, this guy just cushion here just ticks off so many boxes. You know, you got that bottom up approach. You got you know his not necessarily pioneering you know warfare tactics, but nonetheless. Warfare tactics that show that the Civil War wasn't your traditional archaic form of warfare. This mm-hmm. is an evolving modern war, as you said. Some argue the first truly industrial modern war that right. that occurred. Um, and it, it just overall gives you that appreciation for these small figures that did so much during the conflict. And, you know, I, I think public history um, serves well in that capacity. I'm glad that we could tackle this subject mm-hmm. coming from that angle. Of, right. Um, of bottom up. And I forgot to mention too, Joe, that um, a while back when you brought up Alonzo Cushing, that William Cushing is actually his brother. Really? Is that so? Yeah. Interesting connections we make here on Days of Yore. That's what you got to stick around for. That's right. That's right. Uh, <laughs> they certainly have a, a lineage of heroes, don't they? Indeed, um, they do. All die young. I wonder. They do. They die. He, there was also a third brother, Howard, I believe his name is. Um, I. Early 30s, and I'm not sure how old Alonzo was at the time very of his young. death. Yeah. Very, I think so, he was in his 20s. Oh, my God. So, yeah, Cushing been, family, I apologize. but got worse luck than the Kennedys. Yeah. Got cut down too early in their prime. That kind of, it makes a nice segue towards our, our next point here. Um, that is the public history serving, um, serving audiences, first and foremost. So I tend, I also focused here on um, our reading by Benjamin Filing, and this discussed how you know outsider history makers are fueling enthusiasm for for public history interest, while more traditional history institutions tend to struggle. Of course, you know we have podcasting, which I, I think we're going to have a pretty good discussion on, right. and how that uh, that serves no as doubt. a as a good form of public history. But you know, I, I want to think about some other forms of um you know outsider public history Mm -hmm. that we may be able to think about here so let's just tackle this first and foremost you know like how how do we think that these outsider forms of public history are becoming more successful than established institutions like Mm -hmm. museums i hate to say it but i think a lot of people do have an aversion 
to academia because it does feel inaccessible. Like, uh, of course, I don't. I don't think that is a general trend, but I do think that some people who are not very familiar with the field of history would be put off by, you know, something like walking up to the Smithsonian, oh, you know, a little hot under the collar. Like, Just the uh, mere sight of it exudes this, like, oh, acad- like stuffy academics. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, we have that perception of, like, the Ivy League sort of New Englander Gatsby type who's like, well, we're talking about history. <laughs> Very well. We're talking about a Winston Churchill. <laughs> But, you know, um, other than that, though, I think outsider history is very, very accessible for people, uh, whether it for better or worse, rather, um, a good Twitter thread. You can get put that down in five minutes, whereas, <laughs> you know, you get like a hard hitting history book. It's that's that's a commitment. You know, you got to commit um, to a more. I don't want to say institutional, but a more academic uh, realm of history, like a book or, you know, a lecture, like an online lecture or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot less commitment to stuff like a podcast, a YouTube video, a Twitter thread, an Instagram post, uh, a story, what have you. So I think that is what is, is very appealing to a lot of people. But what makes it so great is because it's appealing, right? I mean, if someone told me, like, you could learn everything you need to know about, you know, if I use George Washington again, if you, everything you need to know about George Washington in a 30-minute podcast, it's really well narrated. Like, oh, okay, sign me up, you know? Whereas this way, you could take, you know, 40 years of, of schooling and you could learn maybe everything about George Washington. You're going to take other classes along the way. It's like, well, that's a... Or even the alternative of going into museum. Like, right. even if it was like... So, let's say there's a podcast on the Revolutionary War versus an entire museum exhibit on the Revolutionary War. Modern audiences, and I, I bet you this is going to be the case more than half of the time, pretty close to 100% of the time would probably pick the podcast mm-hmm. well over the museum exam. I think I might. <laughs> I if I'm think being I may t- I mean if there were some truly incredible artifacts there, yeah. um then I would definitely see it. Yeah. But um I don't and it's terrible to say as such dedicated history and American yeah. studies majors and I know it's going to sound sacrilege even in, within this course coming from me, but you know, it, just podcasts and other forms of this, you know, public history media that is coming of age nowadays. You know, it's first and foremost the accessibility. You can't beat it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, the, we've discussed in this class even just the accessibility of museums. You know, what you do for individuals that may be too far out from you, from a museum, or mm-hmm. just may not may not have the means to go, or just may not even initially care. Podcasting, and it's something that I hope we achieved with this episode here. You know, you can provide you know, these, these dramatic narrations of our past, put them into essentially layman's terms here and um, make it accessible for everyone. You know, you don't need to know the terminology of seven-year and four-year history majors <laughs> and American study majors <clears throat> here. Um, you can make it accessible to everyone in that way and then also make it entertaining. And I think right. that is honestly what is lacking from a lot of museums and heritage sites mm-hmm. nowadays. Granted... And we've looked at this through the course. They are trying to improve that um, through all available means. And, of course, I'm sure you and I both know, as well as some members of the audience, how tough museums have it in terms mm. of you know, getting proper funding to get a lot of these ambitious projects up and running. Right. But podcasting, just because of how simple it is in nature mm-hmm. for, you know, I mean, 
it took a matter of what under an hour to add some of the effects and clip yep. together the the dramatic intro here. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean we can accomplish such like grand storytelling and yet make it make it available to everyone. Whereas right. museums, you know, they're going to have a limited audience, but they need to attract that audience mm-hmm. through a lot of large scale interactive exhibits. And they have a limited resources. Like not every museum can have a Mona Lisa, you mm-hmm. know, it's like depending on what kind of, what kind of uh, artifacts you're working with, it might not draw everybody in. Like uh, down in Jamestown, there's like a Jamestown museum. They got some, I hate to say like real stinker exhibits, like something like half of them were empty when I went. It's like walking around. It's like you're supposed to learn about Pocahontas. It's like it's an empty case. It's like this is Pocahontas's left shoe. And it's like it's empty. <laughs> Can't do anything about this. Gotta but... come from a thousand miles away just to see that yeah, shoe. You really do. You really do. It's decayed and, and it's invisible now. They just it's so worth protecting. But I think also with podcasts is there's something very intimate and dare I say human about listening to a story mm-hmm. that has been the constant the consistent thread that connects storytelling is someone has to tell it someone mm-hmm. has to speak the story um and i think there's just such a tradition of oral storytelling in the world that you you can't really deny that it is in itself fun or interesting to listen to someone tell a story well mm-hmm. um I don't think I'm that person. I, I think I oh, tell nonsense, Jim. <laughs> okay, maybe I, I, I bust out a good one every now and then, but <laughs> you got on like Appalachian, you get some guy with a, that, that Appalachian twang, not missing a beat, telling like the funniest story you've ever heard. It's like... And engaging the audience with that. And right. there's a lot of these, those exact individuals, maybe not the, you don't have the Appalachian dialect, maybe, right. but they do have that just gripping narration. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that you mentioned oral history because back in Thomas Calvin's book, previous material we covered, um, he he mentions as well oral history and just how gripping of a form of public history that was Mm -hmm. and still continues to be. So I like to think that, you know, podcasts, even they can, they they can implement both oral history and public history, you know, Mm -hmm. in terms of like local folklore history, you know, that oral history really comes into play. Right. But going back to what you were talking about with, um, with the narration. Yeah. That is, that is absolutely a key skill that I have seen from a lot of successful history podcasters Mm -hmm. And indeed, th- there are many. I- I've mentioned many times how I am, I have a lot of faith in this, in this generation. You know, people like to kind of crap on them and say like, you know, they're, they're not interested in learning history anymore. And, you know, they don't teach in the classrooms. Well, a lot of you know, podcast channels that focus on history, whether it be serious, comedic, or anything in between, and then a lot of YouTube channels that do the same with history. Mm. They have an incredible amount of popularity. I mean, they, yeah, they do, yeah. There is one, oh, I can't remember. He does a lot of the, the content where it's like almost like stick figure animations on YouTube. Mm. Um, but he tells just these hilarious versions of historical events. Mm-hmm. He, he uploaded a video, and I think within a week it got... Five million views, and it was like wow, and top ten on the trending page mm-hmm. of YouTube. So there is absolutely a a desire uh, for for history and modern yeah. uh, media audiences today. I think even to speak to that, it's a bit tangentially related, but like 
a lot of older folks like would say like, well, this generation they don't care about history. They want to tear down statues. And I, I mean, I think <laughs> the same people that say tearing down statues is erasing history. The same people that wouldn't pick up a book and read about the history. It's like. Uh, unless there's some kind of mass purging of every private library in the country, I think we're going to do all right. But yeah, to that point, like there are a lot of young people motivated to learn and this is how they learn. Like it's, you know, I wouldn't go around citing my source as a podcast. If someone was going to ask me, where'd you, where'd you learn that? I'm going to be like American history tellers or something, or, you know, the dollop (laughs) It's like a comedy, you know, history (laughs) podcast. Um, Oh, they're, uh, what was it? The, the Hawaiian, the pineapple company plane expert like plane race did you watch that one <laughs> i did not it Very had good. me crying from laughter <laughs> oh my god it's just wild. but they're like i said they just make these historical events which otherwise would have been the dole pineapple or the dole fruit company race mm-hmm. i believe it was called um they make these otherwise mundane or forgotten pieces of, of history you know comedic engaging yeah. and energetic yeah. and i think that is the key for history moving forward it, it really it always has been but i think just modern audiences expect a lot out of museums and these yeah. other institutions well one thing i think is a challenge is uh i mean history already is cool let's, let's be honest that is it. let that be known to everyone in the audience <laughs> history is cool okay but i think if you look at something like science or physics especially and how the Mythbusters like made science cool, or Bill Nye made science cool. I think a lot of uh, I don't want to use the word influencers, but history uh, media creators that are online are kind of taking up the mantle of a Mythbusters esque. Let's make history cool. It's like because it is like this isn't just you know this isn't a boys only a white boys only club. You know it's not. <laughs> just for old white guys it's for everybody it's been that for a hell of a long time yeah and i've been recently this year reading more uh, histories written by women or that deal with you know women women's studies and women's history and you know native american stuff as well just because like you get into this funk where it's it's really easy to read a book by by a white guy that's a historian it's like you know i want to see like what other perspectives are out there and i think the history field is trying and I think it's doing fairly well at pushing, um, pushing is not the right word, but producing material that's written by women or by, you know, people of other genders or other races and, you know, getting it out there for people to read because, you know, this is for everybody. History is generally the story of humanity and humanity has been everyone ever all the time. So, you know, it's, it's not just for us, it's for everyone. And I think that will be a big hurdle going forward. Uh, is making people know that it's okay to be interested in history. You're not in, you're not like a goofy nerd. No one's <laughs> gonna hate you. Maybe in middle school or, hi- or high school, but beyond that, like the history community, it can be very divisive sometimes. And I hate I hate that because it's a lot of old people that are very staunch and like, well, no, the Confederacy was fighting for the state's <laughs> rights. That it, I am glad to see that that's gradually disappearing yeah. over time. But nonetheless, you are absolutely correct. It is an incredibly divisive. Field yeah, still. and it, it sucks. But I think the younger that historians get, the more welcoming and kind the community is and the more understanding it is and open it is to other perspectives, which... I think helps when it comes to podcasts, to YouTube videos, to Instagram accounts, to Twitter accounts, to any form of social media is that you can find 
you can find your people basically. Like mm-hmm. if you go on Reddit, like there's there's subreddits for everything. Just the way there is a history page for everything online. There's a history podcast for everything. There's a YouTube channel that talks about the history of everything. There's a great one I watched. Her name, uh, their name, excuse me, is Kaz Rowe. And they do a great job of talking about like women's history, fashion history, um, LGBTQ history. And they're so entertaining. And it, 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 it stretches so many boundaries, too, because they'll talk about like the Wild West and like the queer history of the Wild West or of pirates or piracy. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll talk about other stuff that's not just in that's not in those sort of uh, the periphery of history, if you will. They talk about just other stuff, too. It's it's really interesting, really fascinating. And I'm glad, very glad that there's an audience for people like that who have looked at history for so, so long and been like, well, it's not my thing. Like there are people that aren't like me aren't in this field, you know, mm-hmm. like there's no one that I can relate to, but, as time goes on and the more media that is produced in the history field, the more opening, the more open, excuse me, it becomes. And that I think is a very, very beneficial step forward. I think you're right on the money. Um, I just want to bring up too, like how, how impactful podcasts and for lack of a better explanation, YouTube videos, although there are many other types of videos that are, that are being made, you know, television specials, um, you know, webisodes on their own web pages, et cetera, et cetera. But um, just to simplify it as best we can here, just I'm amazed how many museums are adopting mm-hmm. podcasting and YouTubing as you know forms of this new age of public history. You know, one of the one of the primary inspirations actually for this topic was um, John Corstein from the Mariners Museum. Uh, he did a an online uh, discussion episode on the album Arl. Yeah, it was, that was very good. He, yeah, he's just, he said, he's oh my so, gosh, a lot. <laughs> oh my gosh. And <laughs> I have to tell you. <laughs> yeah. Those, every time I listen to him, I just got to chuckle because I'm like, those are like his mic drop lines mm-hmm. all the time. Um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, he like he's just such an engaging figure with one of those voices that mm-hmm. you said earlier that, you know, he is great, I imagine, in the museum, in the, as a museum, in, mm-hmm. the, oh my God, in the museum capacity. But he is just such a force on these online episodes, and I believe they have a podcast as well. Um, I think that was mentioned in an episode, but I haven't been able to find it yet. Uh, but as I was saying, like it's just interesting to see these museums adopt this, and you see how how effective podcasts and YouTube videos are that these museums, which have have established themselves as brick and mortar institutions of historical knowledge are starting to gravitate more and more to an online presence because they know it's more accessible. They know they're able to get these kind of dynamic talks. Of course he does in-person talks just as dynamically, but um, he can do it equally well online um, and you, they know that they can get the same message across it, even better in some cases of history being interesting and fun to learn about. Mm-hmm. I could say <clears throat> the very first history podcast I listened to was called, uh, I, I can't believe I'm forgetting the guy's name. It was Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio with your host. And uh, <laughs> it was such a, I hope his voice sounded Sounds as epic as your that he, he hired somebody to do that part. Oh. he was a he's a, a 
professor of history, I think at the University of North Carolina. <coughs> and um, he just recorded it from his office. He had a guest on every week, usually someone who had written a book. Um, those are so interesting. I would listen to them all the time. When I worked at my parents' garden center, if it was just me, I'd throw one of those on. And uh, he had <laughs> Ashokan Farewell was uh, this theme song. So you get that really beautiful violin playing, and it's just such a nostalgic but, like, intimate thing. Like, And that's one thing I think some podcasts can do very well is it creates a sense of intimacy in the sense that you are kind of, like, welcomed into this discussion. Like, you are here with us. Almost um, like a fireside chat, if you right. will. It puts you into that calm mood, like... I'm going to hear a story from Grandpa here that this yeah. is going to be truly epic. Um, right. And I think that is is good for certain people. Uh, mm. I don't think it's everyone's cup of tea. But, and of course, I think there are plenty of options for people out there. I know we all have heard it from our high school teachers and our college professors. Like, don't cite, don't use Wikipedia. Don't cite, Wik- <laughs> cite Wikipedia. Um, I, I'm glad to see more people are like, yeah, you can go to this, this references in the Wikipedia section. That's a great place to find, you know, sources. Um, but for people outside the field, I think Wikipedia is a great source. Like I, I know that not everything is accurately correct or, or accurate all the time on Wikipedia. Like I get that, but it is a really great source for people who are outside the field or who can't go to a school just to learn at least a little bit at the very least about something like history. And there are a, a vast abundance of Wikipedia pages on history as any other topic, um, it's a good gateway into the field. It really is mm. because I remember, you know, late nights, even before I committed to uh, studying history in college, you know, just late nights when I was a kid, you know, I, one of them that just sticks with me so much is like, I really got interested into this, into like the history of automobiles mm. when I was around you know, 11 or 12. And I was just on Wikipedia for nights upon end researching this, like this steam powered tractor hmm. that the french made and it was like one of the first examples of an automobile and i believe it's from the late 18th early 19th century wow but just like stupid little things like that and mm. like got me it planted that seed of interest yeah for that i have in history to this day yeah and for sure and i had an interaction a rather negative interaction with somebody on twitter who was a they're a history a historian rather a japanese historian there we go they, they live in america but they study japanese history there you go. <laughs> um, and they pointed out a line on the Wikipedia page about uh, the Americans arriving in Japan in 1853. Um, and they're like, they underline, this is just a myth. Like, Wikipedia is so dumb. Like, people on Wikipedia are idiots. Like, this is just a myth. And I was like, hey, you should go and correct that then. Like, it's just like one line, you know. It's, and they kind of fired back. Like, I was a Wikipedia editor for seven years. I didn't get paid for any of my work. No one ever appreciated my work. I deserve to be paid. I'm like, hey, I'm in the history field too. I just think open source stuff is great because growing up in like a pretty difficult financial situation, like my parents owned a business, sure, but they were like kind of beholden to my grandfather. Whole other thing. But, you know, <laughs> growing up in like a difficult financial situation, the internet was a place that I could get information whether it was good information or not i don't know but it was like a place where i could learn and cultivate my interest like had i been you know without the internet or without a bunch of books like i would have been not a history major i probably would have been like an english major no no offense to english majors i love english majors (laughs) and i considered doing it but without that i wouldn't be 
interested or knowledgeable of the things that I am interested in knowledgeable of today. So it's like got me thinking of uh, a part of my philosophy is that I like to make things as accessible as I can to people to have good information. And that was kind of my point in that argument was like, I just like the people who, you know, can appreciate this information would appreciate it Mm -hmm. if it was made freely to them. And I wrote a book about my hometown and I tried to make it as cheap as I can. Well, I'll still be able to make at least a little bit of money. I make like two fifty a book for selling it for 16 bucks or 1650 or whatever. That's just Amazon's robbing you blind policy. Like that's just the way it is. But damn you, Jeff Bezos. It really, seriously, it's just such a weird policy. Like we're going to take 90% of your, <laughs> of your sales. I'm like, okay, I guess. But Now is that only for independent authors? Or... Yeah. So that's for like self-publishing. Oh, I don't okay. know how the industry really is, you know, um, with a big publisher. I don't know what the industry is like for, for authors that are publishing with other publishing houses, the four that there are or whatever that are big publishing houses. But with Amazon, they take a pretty significant portion of what you said, it's like 80% or something like that. So I tried to make it as cheap as I could while still being able to support my t- support myself based on purchases, which I really can't. If I have two, two bucks a purchase or whatever, or 250 a purchase, it's like... If I sell a hundred, I'll be all right. But I'm not going. I'm not paying rent with that money or anything. Everyone, get out here and buy this man's book so he can pay that rent. <laughs> pay that, get that money. But, um, you know that's important to me because if there was a kid like me growing up in a difficult financial situation and not having access to good information, I wouldn't be like, "Ha you can't afford it," or, "Well, I deserve to be paid, so I can't give you my information unless you pay me." I would want this person to have a resource. And what better resource than a YouTube video or a Wikipedia article or a podcast if that interests them? Yeah, it's not a great, it's not an academically approved source, sure, but it's a place for people to cultivate their interest and to feel like they are becoming part of the historical community. And I think that is what's important for us: is that we welcome people into the community, no matter what they know or they don't know. And it's difficult to deal with people who don't know a lot sometimes. Indeed it is. Especially we both at a, have experience dealing with those. Very, very many experiences. But, you know, that's the whole point. We need to let people in and we need to appreciate, you know, who they are and what they're interested in. And I'm glad to see that there is that sort of, almost a spectrum of these podcasts and YouTube videos where, you know, you do have your quote unquote, less reputable sources. But at the same time, you know, I, from the videos and podcasts that I've watched from these, like from these sources, um, they seem to get most of the information right. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, as scholars of history, we want to get all of the information right. So uh, to your point, I, I do understand what you're saying in terms of these kinds of, of channels and videos, you know, they're, <laughs> they're a good gateway drug to history <laughs> yeah. almost. Um but there are a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of museums and historical societies and just professors indiv- like independently creating their own podcasts um, that go out of their way to make these both accessible, entertaining, and, or I should say, they go out of their way to make these episodes accessible, entertaining, and as good scholarly sources, you know, they, mm. they know their stuff, they know their material and they, and they show up when it comes to the, uh, the sources of the podcast or the YouTube right. video. Yeah. That's one thing that, that is cool to, to see is that people are citing sources like Atun Shea, like he'll have like mm-hmm. footnotes, you know, it's like 
yeah, I got this. One time in one of his videos, I will say he got from like an HTML website of like, uh, it was like a timeline of like 1860 to 1861 of like Confederate movements, you know, after secession. It was like, it's HTML website of like Confederates were attacking federal, federal reserves. And I have no reason to doubt that. But it's like, this is also an HTML website made yeah. in like 2007. I don't know if this is a great source, but uh, hey, <laughs> more power to you, man. Um, <laughs> and I, I want to kind of circle back on a comment that we spoke about earlier in terms of, you know, the moods that podcasts specifically put someone in. I think even more so than videos, because, you know, with YouTube videos, we'll say, you get that image. Uh, you get an image and audio. So you mm-hmm. kind of like... You can't picture yourself there. Of course, there's you know newer forms of immersive um, media such as uh, you know virtual reality and augmented reality that indeed YouTube has adopted in some cases mm-hmm. um, that I think is quite spectacular. There is one where you're in the middle of a civil war battle. Yeah, I've seen that. It's like is a that, 360. Yeah, it's a it's a 360 one. Is that, that is cool. Vicksburg or I think it's Vicksburg. Vicksburg yeah, I think it's yeah. the Civil War. Uh, they were the American Battlefield Trust now, I think. Let's upload that video. Yeah, yeah. And I know it was in a trench, so I'm like, I yeah. think it may have been either Vicksburg or Peter. Yeah, like, yeah. Damn, damn Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Um, but yeah, the, obviously there are some forms that are like, that max out the immersiveness. Mm-hmm. But I think podcasts, with that lack of imagery, you're able to, just through the audio alone, you're able to immerse yourself mm-hmm. into the situation or event which is being told you know once again i hope we were successful in our mission to do that for for everyone through this episode um but through these these kind of like very accurate sound effects the music and just the tone of the narration of the story like we and i'm sure many other podcasters in history hope to immerse the audience and we're the list just a single listener um in that time period and the event which is transpiring mm-hmm. and you know just from my listening experience on podcasts i think they are uniquely capable of doing that whereas once again with youtube videos um you have an image to look at so you can't really put yourself in there that much mm-hmm. and usually it's of another person talking <clears throat> right that's a little great point so there's a great spectrum of podcasts as well i, I brought up in our conversation previously dan carlin Mm-hmm. Uh, just hardcore history <clears throat> very much just like a lecture but it's like a very engaging lecture he's got a great voice for it uh, and then you have like the dollop on the other hand that we brought up earlier which is just making jokes the whole time about <laughs> history and what have you and then there's like American History Tellers which puts you in, in the shoes of people in the past uh, and you have like addressing Gettysburg there I speak its name um, it's <laughs> just <like> legendary <laughs> it's more of a conversation but they also do like dramatic readings uh, in some of their episodes specifically dealing with the Gettysburg campaign uh, which is cool uh, you know there's just a great spectrum for a lot of people and I think that's what I think one of the biggest benefits of it is that there is a spectrum and people could look up just about anything and find a podcast or a YouTube channel on it so yeah, I don't really have much else to say on it, uh, to be honest. I think I've covered all the points in this like 30 minutes we've been talking about <laughs> it, which is a good conversation. So like, I'm glad we got to talk about it. So if you have any closing thoughts, finishing finishing questions, volley me. Just a quick way. one here. So we talked YouTube videos and podcasts. You know, are, are there any other forms of, you know, like 
modern public history that you're that you're thinking of here? definitely i think i brought up twitter and instagram and i think instagram especially because uh twitter has a tendency to be a, a hellscape at, at points whatever do you mean there definitely was not any uh <laughs> contemporary news worthy events surrounding twitter that no nah, not lately not that i know <laughs> but elon yeah. musk who? yeah who's that guy uh but instagram a lot of people kind of jump-started their history career. I don't want to say career, but their history journey on Instagram. I am certainly one of those people. I had a history Instagram account that had like three, 400 followers. I was in the inner circle, of, if you will, of some of these people who were starting at the same time as I, as I was, but more successful given they had more time and resources as adults with adult money that could do things with. But And if just to interrupt for real quick, yeah. if listeners... For those that aren't familiar, you said had. What happened to it? <laughs> I lost the password. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have been begging Joe for probably the the better part of a year. I'm like, buddy, you gotta reset that. But you gotta do something because it was okay. honestly it fits so well within the landscape of other Instagram. Uh, yeah. Instagram accounts that did the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of... It was more of like a travel thing, if anything. Like, I, I would put... Originally, I posted, like, on this day in history. That was my, my thing. Mm-hmm. And then I started doing... If I went somewhere, I would take a picture and talk about where I was. Talk about the event, talk about the place. And that was kind of the ride through. But then I would talk about books. I would talk about just things I was interested in. I'd make posts on stories, what have you. Um, and it kind of gained an audience, and I was within this small community of, of Instagram historians, um, including the Addressing Gettysburg folks, Matt Calorie, is, I think is his name, um, the Tattooed Historian. I was in on the ground level when he sort of was like, had a few hundred followers on Instagram. I got in on that level. Um, of course, I can only really speak to Civil War guys because that's what I was... I was it's our bread and butter here. Yeah, I was all. curating that interest on Instagram and curating that crowd um, to the point where uh, you and I both have met up with Matt one-on-one, basically. Not one-on-one, but two-on-one, if you will. We wonderful <laughs> individual. Uh, yeah, he's all right. Actually, he's a cool guy. Was, uh, yeah, Bra- Braden Braden came that time. Us, yeah, yeah. Uh, took us around uh, Culp's Hill, I think, like, <coughs> both times I think we went, but... Yes, yeah, uh, swell guy. Um, so we, we were in that like community, like we had. I mean, we Matt was on the Today Show. <laughs> he loves to boast about that. We basically hung out with a celebrity. Yeah, we were basically hanging out with a celebrity. Uh, he's still yet to reveal a, a secret location to me. Now that I've, I've spoken to him since like twenty twenty one maybe. But all this to say is, I think Instagram is a great place. Um, because but, you can cu- really curate an audience of people who want to read, not only read, but, like, look at a picture. Like, you know, that's but great. He's a good example, I think, too, of, like, the amount of work that goes into mm-hmm. this form of public history, this new age public history, we'll, we'll just call it. Um, you know, he operates, uh, what is it, the Gettysburg Getty's Bike? bike. Gettys Bike. Gettys Bike wow, Tours. That, that works as a name, I guess. It does, it does, it works. <laughs> um, he operates Gettys Bike, Getty Bikes, he operates the... Uh, addressing Gettysburg podcast, you know, he, he does. does a bunch of other things for the community. And these new age public historians that operate, you know, a lot of these other services such as podcasting, you know, th- I find that they have that kind of presence within their communities that a, pu- a, a traditional public historian would. So for those that may be opponents of 
you know, this newfangled public history that we're seeing online, um, rest assured that the, the impact within the communities of these, uh, that these public historians have, that impact is not leaving. In fact, it, it, I think it's, I think it's growing. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely for sure. I mean, if Matt can get on the today show, love you, Matt. Love you, Matt. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think we're doing all right. Um, they even had a, a little Google Meets group they invited me to one. I don't know what happened after that, but I was at least invited to one, and we, it was a pretty cool group of, of Instagram folks, especially, that were operating history accounts on Instagram. It's because you lost your password. That's because I lost my password. They also <laughs> kicked me from the group. Um, what? Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, that was great. Uh, we got to meet... He's on the cover of Confederates in the Attic, the, the reenactor. He's on, on the cover of Confederates in the Attic by Tony Horwitz. Um I was gonna say I was thinking of the author's name, but it's I can't remember the guy on the cover. I don't know. He was in a, he was in that call for like five seconds. He's like, "Hey, I'm the guy on the cover of the Attic." <laughs> I'm he, the Attic Rebel. <laughs> I'm the Attic Rebel. And then he left. Um, so that was cool. It was like I really I thought for a minute like this is my end. Like I'm gonna go to get like I'm not gonna go to college. I'm gonna go to Gettysburg and like work on a career there. Like in like I'll start a podcast. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll start a, cor- a tour company. I was gonna call it Getty's Hike. Getty's hikes tours. <laughs> you may encounter some uh, legal troubles with Matt. Yeah, there. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll we'll be a conglomerate. Well, he'll buy me out. <laughs> That's the mission. One day we're just gonna buy you out. It'll Matt. be a, like a, a Mad Men merger. Like you're gonna buy me, buy in, and I'll be uh, a thousand there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, getting that community and getting involved in that community is one of the most rewarding, I think, things that I could could have done in history, other than write a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, other than do that, being involved with a community of historians who care not only about history, but preserving a place, as public historians do. That's kind of the whole spiel, right? Is preserving some aspect of history in in some way uh, is really rewarding. I, I went on a battlefield cleanup once, and just being out there with hundreds of people who are just really passionate about the Civil War, especially Gettysburg, they're all so nice. They're just the sweetest people on earth, you mm-hmm. know. It's, there's a few bad apples here and there. I'll, I'll admit, as is everywhere, though. as I mean, is everywhere. But you know, just being involved in that, it's super rewarding. Well, I, I think that does it for us. Here. We, us we've we've covered just about everything and then some. That we have. That we have. Thank you for listening, all. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, that ends the special episode. It's heartbreaking. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go shed a tear after this. Like I said, it's just years in the making, and it is. Finally, and we made it to here's one to, episode. Here's to more, huh? Absolutely. Here's, here's to more. Thank you all for listening. This has been Days of Your. I'm your host, Joe, joined with Dustin. Say goodbye, Dustin. Take care, everyone. And remember, love your history, educators. <laughs> <laughs> See you around, folks. <laughs>